This is Welcome Home Radio from the Fresno Association of Realtors on 940 ESPN. Well, good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on the San Joaquin Valley's most informative real estate talk show. This hour is being brought to you by the Fresno Association of Realtors. The goal that we have is to provide our listeners some real facts and the real stats about our local market. <coughs> we want to provide you with that information to help you make good informed decisions. Sometimes we have to go outside the box to understand what's happening inside the box. So today, we have a couple of realtors from, they're not in the San Joaquin Valley, they're from around the country, and we're going to find out what their real estate markets are like there. I happen to know both of them because uh, I worked with them on a committee for the National Association of Realtors, and um Learned a lot from them, They're, and I know today all all the listeners are going to learn a lot from them too. Um, so let's get right to it. On the line we have Mr. Seth Task out of Cleveland, Ohio. How you doing, Seth? I'm doing great, Don. Hey, thank you very much for um, taking the time to be on the show. Um, how's the weather back there in Cleveland, Ohio? <laughs> That's mean from a Californian. So uh, it's actually it, 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 we have we it's not snowing today. Uh, we did have a little bit of snow uh, yesterday. Um, I was actually driving up from Columbus. I live in Cleveland, of course, and um, I had snow on the way up from Columbus. I was there for Ohio Realtors business, but uh, today it's it is overcast and about twenty five to thirty degrees. Wow! Once every two yeah. or three years our low temperature will get down to 25 to 30 degrees. Most of the time it's in the upper 30s for for the cold. Of course, let's not talk about I, summers. <laughs> yes, right. I assume that uh, you guys like stay inside all day on those days. Ah, uh, no. You got to sell real estate, <laughs> Seth. I still go out there and, and, and work. Um now, and actually, this kind of illustrates a point, because in the past, we've said on this show that real estate is like the weather. What's happening in Cleveland, Ohio, may be totally different than what's happening in Central California. So, um, you know, here, it's really cold out there. We've got the sun shining here. Um, well, I hate to say this, a little bit overcast, but it's smoke from the California fires. At least you don't yeah, have those my condolences there, right? to everyone there on that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's horrible to to hear the news about what's going on in California, and we're all praying for everybody uh, out there, and hopefully they get uh, those contained here. Yeah. Uh, over the next week. Well, thank you. So, in uh, one last question, that off the real estate topic, but how did you feel when LeBron James signed with the Los Angeles Lakers? Um, well, you know, that's the second time he's left us. So, you know, it was, you know, the first time was more like, uh, you know, a very difficult time for us. He did, he did come back home and, and gave us the championship that he promised. So it wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as bad the second time. I think we, you know, we hoped he was going to stay and finish here in Cleveland, but I don't think any of us expected it. Um, so, uh, it wasn't quite as bad. Um, but, uh, 
you know, hopefully, hopefully he can bring the Lakers back to the glory that they that they once had. And we're uh, as as you see, uh, cellar dwellers again, <laughs> the Cavaliers. So, shooting for the first pick in the draft. All right, great. Turning to real estate now. Um, what what first of all, what areas do you cover, and is it a urban area or suburban area? Sure. So um, I have a team um, in the Cleveland area. I've got 10 agents on my team. Um, I have a, a partner in a Berkshire Hathaway franchise, and we cover all of Northeast Ohio, um, Cleveland, greater Cleveland area. Uh, Cleveland is sort of uh, m- mostly an east, a west, and a south. Um, so uh, I-77, which which goes straight from center of downtown Cleveland straight down all the way um, into Georgia, um it uh it separates east and west and then uh, i live on the east side and um i do probably 80 percent of my business in the suburban areas um on the east side of cleveland i do some work downtown um as well as uh some near west side business and um and 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 into the south i I get probably uh into some of the school districts that are that are due south of the city what's an average price like in the cleveland area well, um, I mean, it's, it really depends on what type of house we're looking at, but I would, I, I'd say the best way I'd say it is in some of your your above average school systems, um, you know, a four bedroom, two and a half bath colonial, that's uh, you know, twenty five hundred square feet, two car attached garage on, you know, a third to a half an acre, is going to be um, if it's in good condition, somewhere around three hundred thousand. Wow. Um, we have a lot of inventory. Um, that was built in the in the post-war era, 50s and 60s, um, that are uh, ranches, Cape Cods, or bungalows um, that are, you know, two bedrooms, one bath, uh, living room, dining room, kitchen on the first, and then upstairs may or may not be finished, uh, you know, with another one or two bedrooms, and that's normally an 1,100 to 1,600 square foot house with a detached garage. And in many of our, you know, bedroom communities, that property is going to be, Anywhere from, um, you know, if it's if it's completely outdated, like Grandma's house and wallpaper all around, um, that that might be sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars. Um, and when they're updated in, in most of those communities, it's hundred, ten, hundred twenty, hundred thirty, maybe up to one hundred and fifty. Now you mentioned a third of an acre lot. So do you are are most of the homes there on good sized lots here in the Fresno Clovis area? Typically, you'll see a 6,000-square-foot lot, which is about a fifth of an acre. Right, and we see that a lot. I mean, in, like I say, in a lot of those um, what, what we'll call inner ring suburbs, meaning, you know, the suburbs that are that are just outside of, uh, you know, the, the Cleveland proper, um, uh, we have most of those are, you know, I like to call them postage stamp lots, where it's, you know, one house after another. Um, you know, they have sidewalks. They're point one you know, 0.11, 0.15 acres, just like what you're talking about, 6,000 square feet, um, you know, 5,500 square feet. Um, it, those are those lots. Then when you get out into the, um, you know, the suburbs that are a little bit farther out than that, maybe 25 minutes, 30 minutes from the city, uh, some of our some of our top school systems, you know, there's a lot of planned unit developments uh, with homeowners associations where, you know, those are, third of an acre lots, half acre lots, maybe even acre lots. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit farther out, you'll find, you know, two, three, four, or five acre. I noticed that you've mentioned schools a couple of times. So 
are the areas and the price ranges driven by the school system? Yeah, yeah, and they are. And, unfor- you know, it's interesting because our, the way that we fund our school systems has been declared unconstitutional several times, but yet uh, they don't fix it. The government doesn't fix it. It's one of the things that, you know, we're hoping to someday fix. But our property taxes generally fund uh, the lion's share of our school systems. And so, you know, that being the case, you know, our higher uh, our higher level school systems, our top rated school systems are generally a little bit farther out, um, you know, and, and, you know, the tax base there funds a lot of the the brunt of the school system um, and and, uh, and and the costs of the schools. So, um, you know, I, I've heard around the country it's a little little more fair um, and spread out as far as the, the types of school systems you can find. And in our area, unfortunately, uh, the school system a lot of times drives the residential market. I see. You mentioned property taxes. What what are property taxes like back in Ohio? So um, property taxes will generally range. We have a we a, a, a assessed values are, of property taxes are thirty five percent of the actual value. So if a house is 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 valued at a hundred thousand dollars market value, then the assessed value is thirty five thousand, and they multiply that times a millage. Um, but if you if you were to just compare it sort of like an apples to apples approach, um, most of our school systems or excuse me, most of our, our, our communities, the tax rate, if you were just to multiply times a, a, a value, a property value, it's anywhere between 2.2 percent to 4.1 percent um, of the value of the property. So as an example, the, the highest tax community in Northeast Ohio is Shaker Heights. Some people may have heard of Shaker Heights. It's been in some movies and some other um, places. It's somewhat of an affluent community, and, and it also has some lower uh, income areas as well. But the taxes there are 4.09%, and uh, meaning that if you had a house that was $200,000, your annual taxes would be over $8,000 a year. Wow. Um, it, yeah, I know. And some other areas... Um, you may find taxes at, as I say, 2.2%. So that same $200,000 house in, say, Aurora uh, or Solon, um, which are two areas that have good school systems and a lot of commerce, as well as, um, you know, some housing, a lot of housing that doesn't necessarily have children in it. So it's, there's a lot of tax base that's being contributed to that don't necessarily, um, you know, have to do with the number of kids that are in the school and that sort of helps bring those tax values down, but that would be about four thousand forty four hundred for the same house. So again, taxes do drive. And during the mortgage meltdown, that was a big factor. A lot of our communities in in, in our area that had higher rates of taxes really affected the mortgage meltdown because some people just couldn't afford those those taxes, along with you know the the, the interest rates that that uh, adjusted. You know when they when they bought uh, maybe a three one arm or a five one arm during that mortgage meltdown. Mm-hmm. And you know, for those people listening in here in Cal- Central California, you might wonder, well, what does it matter what taxes are like back in Ohio? But this is why it matters. We forty years ago we passed Proposition thirteen, and you know California is known for wildfires, earthquakes, and high taxes, but not property taxes. We, we're capped at 1% of the value. So if you have a 
you buy a home for 200000 your property tax is $2,000. And it can only go up an indexed amount each year until you sell it. So you won't be taxed out of your you won't be property taxed out of your home here in California, and that's a, that's a good thing. And it uh, there are special assessments for school districts that can be voted in, but those are pretty minute in the whole picture. So I like your taxes better than mine. Yeah, that's why everybody wants to buy <laughs> California gold. <laughs> that's um, right. Now I think our sales tax might be a little bit less. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, we got to pay for the wildfire somehow. <laughs> That's right. Um, what What other kind of housing issues do you have back there in the Ohio area? You know, um, we, you know, when the when the when the mortgage meltdown occurred, um, we were one of the first states um, that that got affected by a huge foreclosure hit. Um, there was there were some companies and. Bad actors, best way I could say it. There were a lot of bad actors in our area that were um, part of the fraudulent activity, and um, and so we had a ton of. There was just a ton of properties being foreclosed on um, in our area. So um, you know, it, it it really affected you know the entirety of the market. Um, and then of course as you know as as properties started getting foreclosed on and people you know, then then people started losing their jobs it just was a ripple effect as it was i think everywhere mm-hmm. um but it sort of started here first um i know that i know that and i know california was hit pretty hard too they had a you know, california's bu- bubble burst florida's bubble burst and then sort of this rust belt of michigan and ohio um got hit we all got hit about the same time yeah we're about to go to our commercial break, but I have a question for you before we go to commercial break. How long do you how many games will the Cleveland Browns winning streak go? <laughs> the winning streak? Yeah. Well, we're going to we got Cincinnati next and I think that's a winnable game. Um, you know, we we are very happy with our with with what's going on in Cleveland. Um, you know, at, when you win no games the year before, and you have a tie and three wins the next year. That's a big improvement. So that's right. Um, I, I'll say we'll win one or two more games, hopefully before we lose another. Um, I'm just hoping that we just see gradual improvement, and uh, I think next year is going to be a big year for us. And when we come back after the commercial break, we'll be talking to the eternal optimist again, Seth Task, about some financing issues. So uh, stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio 940 ESPN. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and we're talking with Seth Task, realtor out of Cleveland, Ohio. But in this segment, we're going to talk about another hat that he wears. Uh, he is the incoming chairman for the Conventional Finance Committee for the National Association of Realtors. Not the Cleveland, not the Fresno Association, but the National Association. Um, and thank you for... Uh, uh, letting us call you in, Seth. What what does the conventional finance committee do for, let's say, for the consumer? Sure. Um, so 
you know, NAR has several committees um, that really are, whose real main job is to is to uh, help the general public. Um, we're one of the only associations that are truly nonpartisan. I think that's important. Housing is a nonpartisan issue, um, and when we uh, when we talk in committee um, in the conventional finance committee, we are talking about establishing or I should say recommending policy for the National Association of Realtors to approve through the board of directors so that we can uh, lobby basically our legislative and regulatory bodies um, for for the protection of, of really a healthy finance market. Conventional financing um, is the sector of the financing world that uh, pertains to what are called uh, government-sponsored enterprises, or GSEs. Most people know them as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So if you if you bought a house and you and you uh, got a conventional loan, um, those are insured through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And so uh, we we talk about uh, what types of programs those entities are are, are giving to the public, um, what they're charging, how it affects the market, um, and and some other financing realms as well um, that uh, that uh, the, the federal government plays in in providing financing options for the general public. And one of those other options would be a, um, a task force or working group that you headed up this past year uh, about community sure. bank regulatory relief. Um, can you tell us what the issue was there and and how did our group play into it? And by the way, as our bumper music said, put me in, Coach. I thank you for putting me on your working group. That was. I was going to say, Don. Don did for for those of you in Fresno. Don did a great job uh, serving on that uh, that task force as well, that work group, I should say. Um, so that the, the, each uh, a committee, if they if they feel that a topic needs to be discussed further and we need to really dig in a little deeper, uh, we establish a work group, and that work group. Uh, we'll have a chair. I served as chair on this work group. Um, the reason we set that up is because uh, not only were we talking about, you know, this the reform for the GSEs, which um, those of you who, who sort of in layman's terms, the government-sponsored enterprises were put in conservatorship by the federal government 10 years ago, and they took, which means that the federal government took them over. If you remember during during the mortgage meltdown, there was a bailout of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and the taxpayer basically bailed these enterprises out um, and kept them going. Um, and so um, outside of the realm of, of those GSEs are these smaller co- community banks that may or may not offer programs that are backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And what we were seeing was that the amount of community banks and small banks was really decreasing. Um, over the last three decades, in fact, um, the, the, the amount of, of small banks has really shrunk by uh, over 15,000. I think there's, there's really, I think the number was under 4,000 um, small banks, and that's defined by of their total assets. Um, and, and we're seeing all these too big to fail banks, like the Bank of America's and the cities sort of driving the entire market. So we wanted to make sure that we established a policy um, that made sure that these community banks were not overly regulated to the point that they couldn't compete with the large banks because 
after the mortgage meltdown, the federal government came in and said, you've got to do this, 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 and this. And the reality is, is when you have a small bank that's in Fresno and they're the ones who are really providing the lifeblood of the growth of the business community um, and, and the amount of regulation that they have to go through in order to borrow money from the Federal Reserve to lend out to its community, if it's overly regulated and they can't afford the staff to do that, then these banks were either going out of business or having to sell to a larger bank mm-hmm. and yeah. not being able to provide the service. So what we did was put together a policy so NAR could lobby uh, our government and our legislators to enact laws to help relief, provide relief to some of those smaller banks. And it worked because about a month after our committee meeting where we passed this, um, it ended up being signed into law. So. Yeah, so uh, Senate Bill 2155 um, was uh, went through the House and the Senate, and um, it didn't do everything that we were asking, uh, but it did a lot, uh, and and it, it did uh, give different tiers of, mm-hmm. of of bank sizes and sort of took away some of the regulation that those smaller banks were being um, hampered with, and so uh, we're looking to see what that will do. Um, you know, we've got some goals moving forward for 2019 uh, to, to make sure that we keep our, our foot on the gas on helping these banks further. Tell us what those goals are for 2019, because you will be the chairman. <laughs> so, last year you served yeah, as so, vice chair. Yeah, I was the vice chair last year uh, to Larry Black from California, who's a fabulous volunteer leader in our association. I think you're going to hear from him next. We will. Um, but... Uh, 2019, um, we're looking to see what the sort of what the net effect of Senate Bill 2155 is on the community banking world to determine if there's any additional small bank um, uh, 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 regulation or um, just sort of to look at the whole realm of it to see if there's any more work that we need to do there. Uh, we're going to also look further into identifying robust avenues for new construction renovation and development financing options for consumers because um, one of the things that we are finding is is that we're still not building enough um, our population continues to increase um, you know houses our housing stock around the country continues to get older um, and uh, the Millennials uh, you know you, you can't stop them from you know having babies and, and wanting to buy houses so you know we're gonna head towards a housing shortage if we don't provide some type of avenues of financing for builders to start building again. Uh, we're also going to look at um, NAR's GSE-related policy statements. So, um, you know, we, we over, the, over the course of years, you know, the Conventional Finance Committee has come up with policies for, um, you know, how we attack the GSEs and how we want to keep them, you know, solvent and providing a robust market. And we want to look at all of those policies to make sure that moving forward, as we help uh, provide information to the government um, of, about taking these GSEs out of conservatorship and what type of reform they're going to go under, that we make sure that our policy matches what we really want to see moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's, and then, well, you go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then lastly, you know, we want to look at um, we want to look at what these what these uh, GSEs. Um, are, are doing in relation to what's called the qualified mortgage rule. 
um, and its effectiveness in providing liquidity in the market. And let me let me sort of take that down to layman's terms. When a when a when a when Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac insures a mortgage, in other words, provides a backstop in case it goes bad. That's sort of what they do. They insure a bank, so they provide insurance for the bank, so that if the loan goes bad, um, you know their investment is is insured by the federal government. Well, those loans have to fit into this box called QM, and those those uh, uh, those qualifiers um, have certain terms. You know what your debt ratio is and other things, and so we want to look to see if 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 those if what's established in that QM rule is actually, um, you know, good for us moving forward. Mm-hmm. So um, there's QM, qualified mortgages, and non-qualified. What are some of the non-qualified mortgages? Sure. So a non-qualified mortgage would be something like, um, um, as an example, let's say you went through a bankruptcy um, just recently, and um, uh, uh, maybe you went through a bankruptcy and it was one year ago. Um, and so it took all your debt away, mm-hmm. but you have really good income. And um, maybe the reason why you went through this bankruptcy was because you had some kind of medical condition and you just couldn't take care of the bills or whatever the reason is. Um, a conventional mortgage, you can't, you can't get a conventional mortgage if you've had a bankruptcy um, I can't remember. I think it's within the last three or four years. Um, so, so that that you know, being in a bankruptcy ten months ago or fourteen months ago makes you fall out of that QM box. But if you're making three hundred thousand dollars a year and you have very solid income and you have thirty percent down, um, that one thing takes you out of the QM box. So, some of these non-QM products just mean that one term is outside of the terms of 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 being able to underwrite that loan mm-hmm. under the policies of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Okay. Well, Seth, I want to thank you for uh, letting us call you today, and thank you really for what you do at the National Association of Realtors because it does have an effect on everybody here in Fresno, Clovis, California. So uh, thank you, and uh, we are going to go to our next commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio 940 ESPN. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. And now on the line, we have Mr. Larry Black, a realtor out of Southern California and the past chair of the National Association of Realtors conventional finance committee good morning larry good morning don thank you for having me yeah it's kind of funny in this same show we went from good afternoon seth to good morning larry (laughs) but that's that time zone thing for you there you go all right for um tell us a little bit about yourself um i know what part of southern california are you from I actually reside in an area called Chino Hills uh, in Southern California. So in my uh, footprint, uh, I have uh, several different business entities uh, that stretch from from, uh, 
Diamond Bar and, and the Los Angeles County area to the Inland Empire area, where I have three offices over in the Inland Empire, and stretch it all the way out to San Bernardino. So uh, operating here in just the, the periphery of L.A. County and Orange County and, and uh, uh, pretty much a lot of the Inland Empire area. Uh, so that's kind of where my operations lie. Okay. So you're 20, 30, 40 miles away from the ocean. Correct. Yeah. One of the nice things uh, about uh, being in Southern California where I am is uh, I'm an hour away from skiing or I'm an hour away from, from surfing or uh, an hour away from, from laying in the sun in Palm Springs. Yeah, and Seth, he's, what, an hour away from laying on the beach at Lake Michigan in the middle of winter? So, <laughs> I think... Uh, probably about 25 degrees out there. Exactly. Okay, now, what, uh, um, in your area, um, you're not right on the coast, so you don't have that ocean view, but what does a typical home cost in your area? Well, it, if we want to look at, uh, to the listeners, if we, we uh, let's take a, a three-bedroom, two-bath house in the Covina area or the Glendora area, uh, built in, average home would have been built in about 1958, uh, that would be about 550000 If I want to take all of the entire uh, listed the active listings in that particular area, an average home would actually run up to about 842000 for a four-bedroom, three-bath home uh, in a roughly about 2,200 square foot. The interesting part about it is if you look at, at that area, uh, Covina and Glendora, then this ratchet out to the Inland Empire over here. Now we use that same criteria and we look at a, at a three-bedroom, two-bath home most likely it's going to be built in 1968, and that will range somewhere around 334000 So we have quite a, quite a uh, differential in pricing there. If I take all of Riverside uh, City area uh, or county area, and I look at what the average home is, that's going to be about 532000 four-bedroom, three-bath, built in 1978. That's the average of all active homes in that Riverside area. Okay, so here's a tough question for you, Larry. It's the equivalent of a curveball. Why is it that in such a short distance there can be such a great variation in price? Because... Um, you know, I was going to say here, uh, three hours away in Fresno, you're looking at half those costs. You know, we're two seventy-five, three hundred thousand would be an average, and you can you can get there. It sounds like by going inland further. What what is it? Seth said a lot of it in the Cleveland area had to do with schools. And and Don, that's a that's a great question. Why is there such a difference in such a short period of time and and uh, a lot of it uh, has to do with schools in our area as well but those are specific areas in the school district areas but if you look at uh, the the draw of jobs and you you see the draw for uh, that uh, LA uh, magnet if you will 
uh, and you see our, our Southern California freeways, and you see the commutes that, that people do, uh, and they, they go in, and, and a lot of the jobs are within that L.A. Uh, regional area. So uh, even though the Inland Empire is increasing in, in the job market, still predominantly you're going to see our, our freeways heavily impacted going to uh, L.A. So, uh, again, when you look at that heavily impacted freeway, those houses are going to be a little more valuable if I can get closer to my, my occupation, to my job location. So that's going to have a big impact. As we move out to the Inland Empire, obviously, until those jobs continue to improve in the Inland Empire, those are going to have a little less uh, market price point. Uh, now, the other aspect of that is also if you look at uh, the conforming loan limits, too, which have a factor on this, and the conforming loan limits within the L.A. County area and the Orange County areas are higher than what the Inland Empire has. So the Riversides, the San Bernardinos, those cities or those counties are going to have a lower um, uh, conforming loan limit, okay? so, and it's uh, significantly lower. So that begs the question, do you feel like loan limits in certain counties hold prices down? Absolutely they do. Uh, when I'm looking at a, uh, a higher interest rate, when I go above that conforming loan limit, and let's, let's, we probably should uh, address what a conforming loan limit is sure. in here. And that is, that's where the, the GSEs, which I think you may have addressed already, the uh, G, GSEs have established loan maximums where they say this, this is your, your uh, average uh, market value in the area, so we're establishing this loan limit. And in, in the uh, in the Inland Empire, that uh, loan limit is in the uh, the 427 area. In the uh, Orange County and and uh, L.A. area, it's now crested up towards the the mid uh, higher 600,000 range. So. There's that once you go above those limits, though these conforming limits set by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, and that also uh, contains also into the FHA product, which is a very important product, that will have a limit on housing prices. If my if my price is at uh, uh, a higher level than that that uh, maximum loan limit then I'm going to have to pay more for that financing if I'm if I'm obtaining a loan higher than the loan limit. So they do that again to answer your question, yes, that yeah. does have a factor in uh, determining values of home prices. And here in the Central Valley, we really took a hit a few years ago when FHA lowered their their loan limits by almost a hundred thousand dollars. And um, now you cannot get an FHA loan above 295000 So here in Fresno County. That really, and, you know, if I was a seller selling something around 350000 when that limit was at three ninety, I think I would have been a little bit upset. You, just, you know, they just yanked away 
a, a good portion of the buyers, uh, FHA buyers, uh, it by lowering it a hundred thousand dollars. So you're right, Don, and that that uh, is uh, an unfortunate that that happens and there's been a lot of discussion uh not in, not only in the in a, the national association level but also in the builder industry about why this criteria that they established these these loan limits are are antiquated and they should be uh addressed and changed uh because the in in uh, your area, as well as our Southern California area, and I'm sure in in Ohio, where Seth is from, uh, there are different uh, price points in different areas uh, in within one county. So, if the average price point in a in a county such as San Bernardino uh, County, uh, there in the San Bernardino City, that price point may be. If you look at just that area, it might be only three hundred thousand, and then maybe this four hundred level works for that 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 minimum or maximum loan level. But if you look at something like Chino or Chino Hills, where the average price point could be uh, seven hundred thousand, now th- that price point doesn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. So the building industry actually met with me not too long ago and said, why isn't this changed? Is there any traction that we can get on changing this criteria to zip codes instead of of countywide? Mm. Well, that, that's a possibility. That's, a, that's probably going to be a heavy lift, but it, at least you get the dialogue talking. Okay, and that's where the uh, National Association of Realtors Finance Committee comes in, conventional, although FHA would be on the federal level, not conventional. But when we get back from this commercial break, I want to ask you some questions about this past year and what happened at that conventional finance committee that you chaired. So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 ESPN. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is John Scordino, your host. And on the line, we have Larry Black, a realtor from Southern California, who was the 2018 chairman of the Conventional Finance Policy Committee for the National Association of Realtors. And by the way, Larry, you did a great job on there. I got to sit in on the meetings, well, participate in the meetings somewhat, and you did great. Tell us what some of your what you feel the accomplishments were of that committee and how they affected consumers. Well, I'll tell you, Don, and, and again, thank you for participating on on that committee. Uh, this uh, this committee is is I think one of one of the major committees at the National Association of, of Realtors. The uh, and we obviously. Uh, in my mind, uh, the National Association, uh, with with what they do and their staff, their expert staff, we have just uh, just great uh, uh, back back backing with these uh, with our lobbyists and, and our staff and and really the watchdogs for the consumer and property rights. Uh, what we attempted to do in in 2018. 
uh, we had three goals that were set out, and, and uh, one was to assess the effect of the mortgage rules and lending policies impacting uh, access to credit in the community banks, which uh, uh, I put Seth task as, as chairman of that task force, which I think he covered with you, and I think we accomplished that by uh, our but when we do these these deep dives in, into our uh, on these issues, we have uh, we have our regular we talk to the regulators and we talk to legislators. And uh, Seth did an outstanding as well as you did, Don, because you were on that committee as well. That uh, and has lended and no doubt lended to the passage of of SB twenty one fifty five which actually uh, did uh, a multitude of aspects and, uh, for the community bank and credit union aspects. So very pleased with that passage. And so that's one of the accomplishments uh, that we did for 2018. Then we looked at uh, analyzing the, the mission of the, the government enterprises, the GSEs, as it relates to their large investor and, and uh, rental guarantee programs. And that's uh, that's a kind of a, a mouthful. Uh, and uh, if I have the time, and of course, Don, stop me if I get too long-winded here. But here is uh, the the rental program that, or what happens with the GSEs, the government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they will do these test and learn, uh, these pilot programs. And unfortunately, they're not very transparent, and we find out uh, find out about them after the fact. And they they did this in uh, for the last couple of years. They've done this test and learn where they they would uh, guarantee the loans for these private enterprises to buy other uh, buy rental properties for their own stock, uh, and thereby taking away the inventory off of of the home buying public nationwide. So we uh, took a look at this, finding out whether this was in the charter or in the, the, the best interest of the consumer, and uh, we put a little leverage on uh, the GSEs, uh, explaining that this we didn't think was prudent. And so to, to, to shorten up this uh, dialogue here about it is we then accomplished what was just uh, released here a few months ago that, uh, in fact, they are ceasing this, this test and learn, this pilot program, and no longer will be guaranteeing private enterprise uh, purchase of rental stock and taking them off the inventory, where we're already strapped with the inventory uh, nationwide. So we've accomplished that. And that one always surprised me because, you know, they'll make a loan to an owner-occupant, and, and insure it. They'll even help an investor up to four loans, and in some cases ten, depending on the GSE. But then there's that big void. If you have eleven or twelve, you can't get the help. But it, yet, if it was a big corporation buying hundreds or thousands of homes, they could. That that seems strange. And, and uh, we agree with you. Uh, and, and obviously, the the uh, uh, Conventional Finance and Policy Committee agreed with that as well. And therefore, we instructed our lobbyists and our uh, staff to to 
get the background we need to, to prove to Fannie and Freddie Mac that this is not a prudent practice and we're not even sure it's in their charter. Uh, and so with that pressure, uh, and, and kudos to the, to the committee that, that instructed this, we now have been successful in, in ending that, that program. Uh, but no, it, it was very clear to us that it was not in the best interest of the nation to t- pull those houses off and guaranteeing private enterprise with tax dollar money. Great. And now you said there was a third thing. We had, and this 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 uh, third item that we have has not gotten a lot of, of press or uh, print uh, information about. And this is, for your listeners, uh, our uh, third goal was to evaluate the elimination of the London-based uh, interbank offered rate, which is commonly known as LIBOR. And uh, just to elaborate on that a little bit, that LIBOR index is about two, there's about 2.8 million loans out in the, in the, the nation that are tied to this uh, LIBOR index. And this LIBOR index now is going to cease to exist. Uh, in fact, some of the information that is coming to, to even formulate the index is starting to, to dissipate. And so what happens with these loans was our concern. Again, NAR looking out after the consumer and uh, property rights, we're looking at what's going to happen when this ends. What does it shift to? How do these people that are carrying these loans now going to, to fulfill the, the, the loan contract? Well, uh, we, so we, we, uh, took a look at this and found out that there was an alternative index that most uh, deeds, uh, most notes carry. And that alternative index, though, is a little bit concerning because it says that it, it's going to be a relatively comparable uh, index. Some of the notes have that. Others are specific about it and switching to a different index. But there are those that are others. So a little more research is going to be needed to look at this. Uh, the air apparent that it appears, and I know that uh, because we do our, our research on this, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, which holds a lot of these notes, are uh, are looking at several different indexes. The the air apparent appears to be what we call a SOFI index, and that is a to, to that acronym is Secured Overnight Financing Rate, and that is uh, could be a actual benefit to the to the consumer because that. Rate would probably be a little be a little more favorable and save uh, quite a bit of money in, in interest to the consumer. Okay. And so we're and, kind of monitoring that. And Larry, we're going to have to wrap it up, but in 20 seconds or less, what's your best real estate advice? Well, I'll try and do it in 20 seconds. The uh, the best real estate advice I have is that we are in a shifting market, and without a doubt. There is a professional out there that can help you, the seller, navigate through that, and that's that realtor professional. And thank you very much, Larry, for uh, letting us call you, and thank you to our listeners. See you next week.